2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we discuss a new law that allows people who were convicted of possessing cannabis to more easily seal their criminal record. Plus, we hear about a new course at Colorado State University that's incorporating indigenous perspectives into the curriculum.
1: So they have these incredible, really valuable frameworks for doing science in a very ethical and responsible way. That's coming
2: up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Last week, Governor Jared Polis signed a bill into law that doubled Colorado's recreational marijuana possession limit to two ounces for people who are 21 and older. House Bill 1090 also opens the door for people who were convicted of possessing up to two ounces of cannabis to more easily seal their criminal record. Democratic Representative Alex Valdez was one of the bill's prime sponsors, along with State Senator Julie Gonzalez. And we are talking now with Representative Valdez about the bill's passage. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So it was late last week that the bill was signed into law. Governor Polis said his office would be reviewing records in preparation for additional pardons. Do you know where they are with that process?
3: Well, that's a great question. I think that the governor's office had been looking before the bill had even gotten to his desk for signature at some of these cases. I know the governor uh, is very progressive on cannabis issues, both in Washington and now as the governor of the state. So they've been looking ahead and trying to find ways to be ready for the day when we could get a bill like this to his desk and get it signed into law. So I imagine they're ahead of the curve, but they haven't provided us with any with any numbers per se. But uh, we know that they're uh, on top of it of in their office and would expect those to start happening very soon.
2: For those who haven't been following this bill as it, you know, made its way through the legislature, tell us a little bit more about what it does.
3: Well, you know, really what it does is it just allows folks to seal uh, prior cannabis convictions Uh, in an easier way. And so what we had seen before is that some DAs were open to sealing these convictions and some weren't. And that was really philosophical. But what this bill did was made it so that statewide, regardless of the jurisdiction, that somebody uh, may have been convicted of of a crime regarding cannabis, that they can go about having those Uh, Convictions sealed, and we know that will help people as they go uh, to do the every everyday things like apply for work where their background may be looked at, or apply for housing. And you know what? What really this bill does is it helps to true up the intent of the Colorado voters who voted unanimously, 64 percent. You know, not unanimously but 64%, which is a a great majority for a state, um, that cannabis should be uh, legalized. And therefore, you know, we feel um, this is just kind of the next step in the decriminalization and, and, and kind of writing the record on cannabis convictions of the past.
2: You sort of touched on this, but for people who might not understand the importance of having your record sealed, what can that do for people?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's huge if, you know, there are, these are the kind of uh, convictions that haunt folks because it may pop up when someone's applying for work or applying for uh, a job that does a more in-depth background check, a job driving or doing some of the things that, you know, can really provide a good income for a person. It just holds people back. And then, you know, you talk about housing as well. When somebody applies for housing, their credit and uh, criminal uh, record is pulled. And this can be something that, you know, causes someone to make an adverse uh, decision on their behalf. And it, it really is something that is unfortunate given, you know, now we know the voters and, and you know, the nation in general is really relaxing feelings around uh, how cannabis should be treated and, and just generally being, you know, we're moving in a progressive nature uh, and in a state that, that legalized, you know, years and years ago, gosh, it's almost been 10 years now, if you can believe it, um, it's time for us to try and help write the record for those folks who, who were convicted prior to that legalization for these low level cannabis crimes.
2: It seems like bills like this one are at least in part starting to unravel some of, you know, the criminal consequences of past marijuana laws that, like you mentioned, really linger. Are there other legislative ideas that you're talking about with fellow lawmakers that would continue this process of unraveling these consequences?
3: Most of the cannabis legislation that we're seeing moving through the Colorado legislature at this point is really kind of that second level stuff, finding ways to really uh, enable the small business owners that have been operating in this space to, to do more, finding more efficient ways to um deliver medical product to patients and, and those sorts of things. But I think, you know, what 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 I really look at is how do we right the wrongs of the past? Because far too often folks who are convicted of cannabis crimes were, you know, fit the demographic that we oftentimes see in the criminal justice system where they were uh, lower income people of color and um, weren't able to really provide a substantive defense for themselves against charges and and things that we've seen and just kind of know as we move through this era of criminal justice reform. One of the easiest and, and the low hanging fruit in my estimation is these cannabis crimes because I think the general consensus amongst folks in Colorado is that um, cannabis possession certainly is not uh, a crime, you know, and it's something that we wouldn't want uh, someone's life to just be haunted by.
2: Alex Valdez represents Colorado's fifth house district in Denver County. Representative Valdez, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: years, some Colorado cities and colleges have publicly recognized the land they're on as the traditional and ancestral homelands of indigenous nations and peoples. These are known as land acknowledgement statements. And as KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, a new class at Colorado State University is using their admission to help examine the reconciliation work that still needs to be done.
0: I met newly minted CSU professor Dominique David-Chavez in the Natural Resources Building on the Fort Collins campus. She asked if she could introduce herself in her indigenous language.
1: Dominique Aitainaru David-Chavez Diri. That's who I am. And Arawak Kibaro Taino Daka. That's my community.
0: She stands beside what she calls an elder tree stump in the lobby. The large reddish stump is turned sideways, and at its highest stands as tall as five foot one David Chavez. More than 80 labels have been pasted on it, creating a horizontal timeline that starts right of center and moves outward. The first date is 130, and says the temple of Olympian Zeus completed.
1: My ancestry is Arawak, Taino, or Caribbean
0: indigenous. And so we're the people who discovered Columbus. Kneeling down, she reads another one of the labels.
1: But then here, yeah, 1492, Columbus discovered
0: America. The timeline, she says, is all about discovery, conquering, fallen dynasties, and who's in power. But the tree remembers more than just that.
1: And I think about how could we
0: rework this timeline? to include like what would be important in our communities. Maybe it's natural events, she says, like a drought, fire, or adapting to a hurricane.
1: These are a lot of the things that we remembered are really significant cultural happenings, like an exchange, a meeting of new people coming to know new seeds that we now grow as a food source.
0: This is the concept behind Davi Chavez's new course, Natural Resource Rights and Reconciliation. She taught it for the first time this spring as a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Forest and Rangeland Stewardship.
1: So we kind of do a lot of 101 about what does it mean to be indigenous? What is the real history of the land here.
0: The course covers hundreds of years of history. It examines how colonialism and imperialism shaped the field of natural resources, and how the industry can look to indigenous peoples to become better stewards of the land.
1: So they have these incredible, really valuable frameworks
0: for doing science in a very ethical and responsible way. In a recent virtual class, she spoke about the Antiquities Act of 1906, which protects natural and cultural resources by creating national monuments on public lands.
1: It gets really interesting when you look at the original act in detail and thinking about Indigenous rights
0: and history. The lecture then moves to Utah's Bears Ears National Monument, created by President Obama in 2016. Almost a year later, President Trump reduced its size by 85%. Now the Biden administration is looking at reversing the decision. At this point, she splits her students into groups.
1: You'll work together collaboratively to analyze different positions of stakeholders and rights holders? So I really wanted a different perspective on just like environmental
0: studies. That's senior Emily Cruz Arizola. The environmental policy and politics major has indigenous ancestry and identifies as a Latinx woman. Growing up, she says she didn't learn much about Native American history.
1: I guess I never really realized that they are rights holders, not just like stakeholders in environmental issues. They have legal rights and legal grounds.
0: The class also covers land acknowledgements from land-grant universities like CSU. This is from a video statement on the university's land acknowledgement website that was launched in 2019. It begins with a 1906 recording of Hopi Nation Eagle Song.
4: Colorado State University acknowledges with respect that the land we are on today is the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Arapaho, Cheyenne,
0: and Ute nations and peoples. The college was founded in 1879 with 89,000 acres under the Morrill Act grant. According to data from High Country News, the U.S. paid over $3,600 for the indigenous land. The principal endowment raised from the grant was more than $400,000. For every dollar paid to the tribes, CSU raised 113 dollars By 2018, the endowment totaled nearly $356 million.
1: And significantly, that our founding came at a dire cost to Native nations and peoples whose land this university was built upon.
0: Dominique David-Chavez, says CSU's land acknowledgement had been in the works for years, but was accelerated after two prospective Native American students were racially profiled and questioned by police during an admissions tour in 2018.
1: Interesting to think that people who are indigenous to these lands, to this part of the world, people perceive as looking like they don't belong
0: here. The incident sparked outrage. Indigenous students like Davi Chavez, who was working on her PhD at the time, shared their personal stories of racism and implicit bias. They presented then-President Tony Frank with a list of actions and demanded change. We really use that as a point of leverage to catalyze something better. But she says land acknowledgement is just the beginning of the work that needs to be done.
1: We need to honor rights, first and foremost, inherent rights that people have to the land, to their life ways that have been traumatically taken from indigenous peoples.
0: She mentions restoring land to tribes, prioritizing and funding access to indigenous language, and allowing the communities most impacted by colonization to lead the work. David Chavez says she'll continue her research on indigenous land and data stewardship in the fall, then teach her class again in the spring. But her hope is one day the course becomes obsolete, as indigenous perspectives are woven throughout all classes in the department. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC.
2: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Nearly a year after an elderly woman with dementia was violently arrested by police in Loveland, those officers have resigned and are now facing criminal charges, while the rest of the department undergoes Alzheimer's awareness training and additional de escalation training. This incident has drawn national attention to a problem that experts say is widespread, police often lacking the skills to interact with people with disabilities. KUNC's mental health reporter, Lee Patterson, joins us now for more. Hi, Lee. Hi there. Remind us first of some of the details of the incident in question. Sure. So it's
5: been making news recently because a federal lawsuit was filed and also body cam video came out. But it actually happened last June. A 73-year-old woman named Karen Garner. She tried to leave a Walmart store without paying for her items. An employee called the police. And not long after, she's walking down a quiet road. An officer pulls over. All
0: right, let's stop, ma'am.
5: He addresses her, and when she doesn't respond, he handcuffs her, taking her to the ground, and then roughly puts her in his Please vehicle. Stop. Afterwards, Karen Garner's lawyers say she sat in jail for several hours with
2: untreated shoulder injuries. How often do police encounter people with disabilities, things like autism, blindness, dementia?
5: Well, we don't know. That kind of comprehensive data really just doesn't exist. But there is broad agreement that these encounters happen with some frequency. The outcomes, of course, aren't always bad, but interactions with the criminal justice system are common. According to data from the Department of Justice in a 2016 survey, nearly 40 percent of people in state and federal prisons reported having a disability. In 2017, a study that was published in the American Journal of Public Health found that disabled people, particularly disabled black people, are far more likely to be arrested by age 28 compared to the general population. The feeling among several people I've talked to during the course of this reporting, and that's advocates, people from the law enforcement world, some elected officials, is that police are just not prepared to handle these encounters because they don't know how to identify someone who has a disability.
0: And It's scary because you don't know why they're not following your commands. So your adrenaline starts pumping. You think, okay, now I'm going to have, they're doing something bad. They're not listening to my commands because they have a warrant or because they have a gun on them, or you come up with all of these scenarios to explain it. This is Allie Thompson. She
5: lives in Berthoud, and she's worked in law enforcement for a long time as a deputy sheriff in the Boulder Sheriff's Department. Now she works in the attorney general's office, and she's also on the Colorado Developmental Disabilities Council. She has two kids with special needs.
0: Typically, at least when I worked the street, when I didn't have the experience I have, now it never came into my head that they're not listening to my commands because they have autism. Or because they have Alzheimer's.
5: She says in these situations, officers oftentimes just fall back on their training on the use of force continuum and control the situation physically, which is more or less what we saw in the video of Karen Garner's arrest.
2: We know that officers in Loveland are being required to take Alzheimer's awareness training, plus some will get additional de-escalation training. I'm wondering, Lee, what level of training is generally required at the state and national level on how to interact with disabled citizens?
5: Here in Colorado, the state standard is a minimum of two hours on how to interact with quote, special needs populations. Uh, there is a bill to improve that standard that's currently making its way through the state house. Nationally, police training standards don't exist. So standards are going to vary wildly from department to department. And there's something like 18,000 police departments across the US, many of them on the smaller side with not tons of resources. Jim Birch is the president of the National Police Foundation. It's a nonprofit that advises departments across the country. So
3: on the whole, we're doing terrible. We have to do much, much better at being able to recognize these types of issues and being more sensitive to them and learning how to provide respectful and just responses to people who have these kinds of challenges.
2: Tell us a little bit about what's actually in the training.
5: There are a variety of different curriculums and, and guides and tip sheets from many organizations, but here's some of the guidance from the International Association of Chiefs of Police. For example, officers should speak calmly in short, direct phrases, avoid touching if possible, eliminate loud sounds, bright lights, look for a medical ID tag, a bracelet, for example, and to not rush, to be prepared for a long encounter unless there's a medical emergency. Now, in addition to disability specific trainings, many people who work on law enforcement and training say that other types of curriculum are also relevant. Crisis intervention training is a is a common one. De-escalation training and sessions on mental illness are also relevant. But this is not necessarily enough, according to some experts. Here's Jim Birch again. Training
3: is great, but there are a lot of training pressures on police departments. There are a lot of time and resource demands on the staff that make it very difficult to um, provide the kind of training in these areas um, that they need. But we think there's so much more that they could be doing other than just training officers and how to recognize these particular needs or disabilities.
5: Like officers doing community events with people who have disabilities or departments bringing on disabled cadets. Supervisors reviewing body cam footage with officers, not related to something going wrong, but a time for officers to dissect their interactions and review what they were thinking at the time. These were examples that Birch gave on um, what departments can do
2: aside from training. Lee Patterson reports on mental health for KUNC. Thanks so much for your reporting, and we know you'll continue to follow the story. You're welcome. lawmakers have introduced a bill that would make changes to Colorado's school funding formula. Some of the changes are enabled by a ruling last week from the state Supreme Court that gives lawmakers the ability to incrementally raise property taxes without the voter approval that's normally required by Colorado's Taxpayers Bill of Rights, or TABOR. Proponents hope this ruling will allow districts to begin to recoup millions of dollars in lost revenue and untangle a long-standing, complicated school funding issue. For for more on this, we're joined by Erica Meltzer, bureau chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Colorado has a famously complex school funding formula. Uh, can you give us a brief background to help put these potential changes into perspective?
4: There's two pieces that uh, that folks need to understand. There's where the money comes from, and then there is how the money gets distributed. There's a certain amount of per pupil funding that the state agrees on according to a formula and a portion of that comes from local property taxes and then the state makes up the rest of the difference but over time for a bunch of complicated reasons that local share has been shrinking and the state has taken on more and more responsibility so that's put a big burden on on the state budget and is one of the reasons that we've underfunded our schools the other piece of it is how the money goes out to school districts And again, there's a very complicated formula based on a a bunch of factors like what is the cost of living in the district? How large is the district? How many students in poverty live in the district? But there's been increasing dissatisfaction with that formula and a feeling that it is unfair because it actually ends up, in in many cases, helping well-off districts more than it helps districts that have large numbers of students in poverty. And it also doesn't address at all how many English language learners there are in a district, how many students with disabilities. And these are students that it costs more to educate. At the same time, changing that has been very politically challenging because there just isn't enough money to go around. So you start talking about dividing up that pie differently, people get upset. So that really brings us to to the current moment and the Supreme Court decision last week.
2: And on that decision, lawmakers had asked the state Supreme Court to weigh in on the legality of House Bill 1164. Can you tell us about why lawmakers felt they needed the approval of the Supreme Court?
4: The Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, what everyone knows as Tabor, requires voters to approve tax increases, and, and we've all seen these on our ballots many times. I had mentioned previously this this local share and that this local share had been shrinking. One of the reasons for that is because of an interpretation of Tabor that happened in the 1990s and the early 2000s that caused local property taxes to, to go down. And they went down, even though the vast majority of school districts had held what are called debrucing elections, And that was where voters said, hey, we're okay with our taxes the way they are, and you can keep however much revenue those taxes generate. So in a normal situation, that would have frozen those tax rates. But because of these conflicting interpretations at the state level, those tax rates continued to go down, less local money came in, and the state had to make up more of a difference. What 1164 did was the Colorado General Assembly said, those tax rates should have never gone down in the first place. That was a mistake. So we think that we can reset them without a new vote, because you already voted. It might have been a generation ago. The people who voted on that might not be alive now, but, but you did already vote, and we we're going to reset them. But to avoid too much of a shock to the system, we're going to gradually step up to that previous rate. And so because of that lack of a vote, they wanted the Colorado Supreme Court to say, is this constitutional? On Monday, they released a decision that said, yes, this is constitutional. And education funding advocates were very thrilled, just really hailing this as a huge win for Colorado students.
2: And now with the go-ahead from the Supreme Court, lawmakers will be raising property taxes. I think you mentioned incrementally. How will this be rolled out?
4: They're going to put in one mil a year until you reach whatever that tax rate was that the voters approved. Most of these elections happened in the... In the 90s, a mill is the equivalent of $1 on every $1,000 of assessed value of your property. The cap in Colorado is 27 mils, so no one's gonna go above 27 mils. There are some districts that are actually fully funded at lower rates, so those folks would also top out at whatever that fully funded rate is. So this will be gradually phased in, and in the first year, they expect to see more than $90 million come in for education. And when this is fully implemented, they expect to see $288 million a year additional for education.
2: And we know that education has been chronically underfunded for a long time. Uh, Is this going to make much of a dent?
4: When this is fully implemented, this will be the equivalent of about half of what we call the budget stabilization factor or the negative factor. That's the amount of money that lawmakers cut from education each year to fund other priorities. And so local taxpayers will make up about half of that. And state lawmakers that I am talking to are very optimistic that if the economy continues to be strong, they'll be able to make up the state half. They're saying within five years, we'll see what what actually happens.
2: Erica Meltzer is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. You'll find a link to her reporting on this at our website, KUNC.org. Erica, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me
2: that's our show for today. On the next Colorado Edition, we'll hear how Colorado's restaurant and tourism industries are responding to a shortage of workers. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.